Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see you. Our message this morning comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 17 at least. I will ask that you stand in honor of reading God's words to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. For Christ's love compels us. We were convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Father God, we give thanks for this day. We thank you for the joyous promise that we just heard lifted up in praise. What a day that will be indeed. I pray, Father, during this time as we study, as we learn from your word, that we can more accurately center ourselves on you and your calling upon us and upon us as a church. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated. It was spring of 2010, and this the following events occurred somewhere between Gillum, Louisiana, and Shreveport, Louisiana. And of course, you know where Gillum is. It's right by Belcher, uh, just north of Shreveport there. You know that. And um, I uh, had taken that morning uh, and was, was trying to be essentially in two places at once. I was serving as the intentional interim pastor of the Linda Lay Baptist Church there in Gillum and was a faculty member at Louisiana State University in Shreveport that was about um, a little over an hour away. And that becomes important in the events that unfolded. And and I had a, um, uh, of course, the morning worship uh, set up, planned, uh, went, went through that. And uh, I also had something else on the agenda that particular day, and that was an induction ceremony into an honor fraternity there at LSU Shreveport, which began, this is also important, a little after one o'clock. And so I had to get from uh, Gillum, Louisiana to Shreveport, Louisiana in a very short period of time. So I, y'all would love this, I wrapped the sermon up just a little bit earlier than normal that particular day. Uh, for, I think, only the second time in my entire life, I turned down a lunch invitation after church uh, because I had to hit the road and then uh, hopped in our Ford Windstar and began hurtling down Highway 71. Uh, the speed limit was 55. I was somewhere north of the, actually, the, <laughs> I was north of 71. It was uh, uh, Highway 71, and I was going a little bit faster than uh, the highway number at the time. 
And I thought that I would save some time by, we had to wear our academic regalia for this induction ceremony. And so I had uh, my green robes uh, next to me. I had it all laid out and I prepared to uh, change into those while I was driving. I thought that would... I thought that would say, yeah, you see how reasonable a thought that is. Uh, so I, I made that decision. And so uh, there I was uh, flying down the highway, changing into this bright green uh, uh, robe uh, that my daughter uh, years later said res- makes me resemble the green goblin uh, when I'm, I'm wearing it. And I was about uh, three quarters of the way into this when I saw the blue lights in my rearview mirror flashing that I needed to, to pull over. <clears throat> and so at so I, I pulled over and I was thrashing around trying to get out of this uh, robe uh, before the state trooper walked up. And he walked up and he paused and he took a step back and he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, what are you doing? <clears throat> <clears throat> so... This story comes to mind uh, when I look at 2 Corinthians 5, because in it, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about how they are going to balance their new life in Christ with their, uh, their previous lives, specifically how they are going to handle the fact that they were now in church together, but continuing to work among those who are not believers. How do we balance this calling that we have, that we all have as ministers to Christ, uh, and which we actively engage in, which we practice on Sundays, but what does that look Monday through Saturday? What does it mean to be a true minister as we balance these roles between our jobs and our ministries? Because it is important for us to remember as believers that we are all ministers, all of us. This is not a sacred calling for a select few that we are all uh, called uh, to be ministers in Christ. In fact, we are called to be a royal priesthood ourselves. And so when we get to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing this with the early church. And he shares with them, first of all, that it is the love of Christ that compels us to be ministers and to be reaching out to others. We see this in verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. I don't know how you are interacting with other people, particularly people you don't know as well. Some folks are very comfortable with that. Uh, They draw energy from that. We call uh, uh, folks uh, like that as being very uh, uh, extroverted in how they approach the world. And then there are others uh, who are more introverted. And so some people engage and can talk to a stranger. Other folks uh, just feel exhausted by the end of any uh, party or other social interaction. And as we get to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is identifying what pushes us to be a little bit different from others. What is it that drives us as Christians to engage in conversations with those around us? What forces us as believers to feel this sense of calling and reaching out to others? And he identifies it as love. He says, he puts it so succinctly, 
It is the love of Christ that compels us to go beyond our comfort zone and to reach out to others. Have you ever seen love compel someone to do something unusual or crazy? I think every good uh, love story has some element of that in it. It wasn't exactly a love story, or, or I should say it was a love story of a different kind. A few years ago, I was walking in my uh, neighborhood, and there was a neighbor a few streets over. I, I didn't know him, um, but came out, and there were these gorgeous oak trees in the front lawn, and he was in his front lawn up in a tree building a tree house. He was not in his backyard where he could keep it hidden. He was in his front yard where he would affect the property values of everyone around him by putting this uh, tree house in the front. And so I walked by and I, I, I'm, I'm sure he read my face that was, uh, that was a little uh, quizzical. And I walked by and he shrugged. He said, grandkids. It's grandkids. Don't have a tree in the backyard, grandkids. He said, and I thought, I got it. I understand this, this uh, crazy activity, this bizarre behavior. He said one word and identified the love behind it. Grandkids, that took care of it. I remember, uh, and what a beautiful memory I have of my grandmother who uh, lived for decades in Marshall, Texas. And my parents, I always thought as a kid, like they just really wanted me to spend time with my grandparents. But every summer they would dump me off in Marshall And I would spend the summer with her, and it was only when I became a parent myself that I realized it was completely self-interested from their perspective to to get me out of the house. And uh, so I would spend uh, just just wonderful days with uh, with grandmother. She would do different things that I didn't normally see done, and she was always very engaging, would involve us in making bread and doing all these different uh, things, except for when, as the world turns, uh, came on, then everything would shut down and we weren't allowed to, to watch the show with her and, uh, and we weren't allowed to interrupt her. Uh, but I remember this one, uh, one summer that I spent with her, she purchased a sticker book that was page after page of, uh, different images. And then in the back were pages and pages of stickers. And so what you would find is there would be an outline of a bird or a flower and you'd have to flip to the back, find it, lick this, this horrific tasting, uh, uh, back of the sticker and then stick it into the book. And, and that was kind of it. I mean, it was, it was beautifully designed to keep kids engaged, uh, for hours. And so it was for me. Well, there was this one particular afternoon where I was, um, working on the sticker book and came across a, uh, uh, a, a tree or something, and I went back and I pulled the tree out. And as I did, I actually accidentally pulled this little bumblebee sticker out that fell on the ground where I was. And I didn't care. I didn't need it. I needed the tree. So I did the tree and kept on going. And my grandmother at this time decided uh, that, that while I was engaged was a great time to vacuum the house. So she was vacuuming the house. And she had the, one of those big canister vacuums. You remember those? It was looked like the uh, uh, the fuel engine on the space shuttle, this massive container uh, and and this hose that snaked out. And so she was going around doing this and she sucked up this bumblebee right into this vacuum cleaner. And I, I was unaware of it. Neither of us realized the enormity of what had transpired. And so she continued on. And then I uh, got to the place where I needed the bumblebee and I looked down and there was no bumblebee. And instantly I realized what had happened. And I reacted as any small child would 
I began just wailing as loud as I could. Full liquid meltdown, uh, just pitching this unholy fit. And uh, my grandmother came in and said, what's wrong? And I explained to her very rationally, I'm sure, about how she had vacuumed up this blessed bumblebee sticker. And she said, that's okay. And she went and got uh, newspapers. There used to be these things called newspapers you would get every morning at your house. And she had all these, and she spread out these papers, and she dumped this container of junk onto this newspaper. And here's the image I have of my grandmother, is leaning over, digging through this trash, searching out this thing that was of such great value to me that she ultimately found and gave to me and told me not to lick it, actually. She, <laughs> she, she got a sponge or something that I got to use. Love compels us to do things we wouldn't ordinarily do. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul identifies the fuel that drives the engine of Christian behavior, this love for others that he has. The fact that Christ loves me fills me with that desire to serve him and to love others. And the fact that Christ loves you compels you to do the same and to share that love with others. The simple fact that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does is one of the most profound feelings of grace that I know. There's nothing you can do. You can't increase your church attendance and God will love you more. You can't tithe more and God will love you more. There's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more than you already does. That's one of the great scandals of grace uh, and the beauties of grace that he has. And in the same way, there's nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less. He loves us and he loves you. And it is in gratitude out of that that love compels us as a church to do things we might not ordinarily want to do. To spend money to send people across the country to share his love or around the world to go to places that none of us have ever been to carry that message of good news Christ's love compels us to minister to others. The love of Christ compels us. As well, the love of Christ doesn't just compel us. The love of Christ blinds us in an important way. In verse 16, Paul writes clearly, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. The love of Christ blinds us to some of those who are around us. Here's what I mean by that. Have you spent any time this week with idiots? Have you spent any time this week with idiots? One can encounter them in many different places. You can encounter them in the in the store. Have you ever uh, uh, asked for help in a store and in the conversation with the person helping you, you realize you know more about the product than they do? And you think, ugh, I've drawn the idiot today as I work through this. Or maybe, maybe it has uh, been a time you're driving, perhaps on I-35, and you have driven past the idiot's. Paul tells us quite clearly in verse 16, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly 
point of view. This means two things. One, it means we don't look down on others. So on those occasions uh, when we may be tempted uh, to think of ourselves as respectable and looking down upon others for one reason or another, Paul tells us quite directly, don't look down on others because of the calling of Christ that he has. The second thing it means for us, though, is also that we don't look up to others in the same way. It's not only looking down on someone, but also looking up on someone. In the church, there is no room for personality focuses, personality cults. The pastor is the leader of the church, but not the focus of the church. And Paul shares directly with the church at Corinth that there are no idiots. There are not those that we look down upon, but only those sinners who are in need of Christ or those saints who are recovering sinners. We're still working on it day by day. Have you ever heard the phrase blinded by love? Oh, he's blinded by love. She's blinded by love. In a sense, that's the image going on here, that Christ, the love of Christ blinds us to those around us. And that's why it's important for us to recognize that focusing upon others is more important than focusing upon ourselves. And I'm talking here in terms of the church, although I think it's true individually as well. During the interim days, during the time when there's not a pastor, a church can get very self-focused. So we are concerned with our issues, our challenges, our difficulties. And any time we focus upon ourselves, that pulls us off God's mission to reach this world with his love. And so God calls us during all times, but especially during the interim days in the life of a church, to be aware of this calling and to be focused on others. I think that's one of the things that's so helpful about marriage is it it intentionally keeps the focus off yourself and onto this other person. And in the same way, Christ has called us during all days, but especially during the interim days in the life of a church, to be focused upon His people who are outside the church and not only on we ourselves. So love compels us and love blinds us. The third thing that He shares is that the love of Christ transforms us. The love of Christ transforms us. One of the most famous verses Paul ever wrote, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. My favorite time of year uh, on the UMHB campus is uh, commencement, uh, graduation, time of tremendous celebration at the accomplishment of uh, all these students. My second favorite time of year is coming up in a couple of weeks, and that is welcome week. And this is the time when students come to campus uh, for the first time and they are oriented as to what it means to be at the University of Mary Hardin-Baylor. And so we share some things with them, like where various buildings are, as we try to orient them uh, to uh, their new life. But it's, it's fundamental, the things you have to teach them during orientation. For example, we have to teach them that we hate Hardin-Simmons. Like they don't... They don't know that when they get here, so we have to teach them exactly how best to hate and who to hate. 
And so as they come to campus, and, and we, of course, we show about, uh, about, uh, how to study and do all these other things and where to go to eat and, and, um, um, where, where they need to spend their time most productively, all those important things. Uh, we have to orient them on all these different things. Well, in the same way, Paul is sharing with the church at Corinth that now that you are in Christ, you are reoriented. You have a new orientation from the orientation you had before. The love of Christ changes us and changes how we look around and interact with those around us. Paul writes that it changes changes us in three ways. First of all, it changes our sinful attitude toward God. Paul said used to, Paul was from the South, used to, the way you interacted with God is God was your adversary. God was to be feared. God was going to judge you. But when you are in new Christ, when you are uh, in Christ, you are now a new creation. And you look to God not as an adversary, but as a father. That's why there's such power in the name uh, of Abba. Abba, that that Aramaic word uh, that was one of the first words that a a good little Jewish child learned. Uh, Abba, father. Abba. It sounds like the first word that a baby would say. And so when we are told by Christ that now we can refer to God as Abba, that is a powerful shift in our orientation from someone to be feared, from someone to be loved. So love transforms us by changing our sinful attitude toward God. It also changes our sinful attitude toward others, toward other people around us too. In fact, we begin to see people not as objects, or obstacles, or idiots, but rather seeing people as image bearers of God. There's a beautiful sermon by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, very gifted writer, wrote lots of things uh, uh, that are perhaps more famous, but wrote a few sermons as well. And one of those sermons is called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he talks about the burden that we carry as being believers. And he says something very interesting. He says, you know, when you think about things that last forever... You think about maybe buildings, uh, maybe nations, maybe uh, interstates, um, that if, if you wanted to talk about things that last a generation, you might refer to some of those things. But he said the irony is we know from history that all of those things pass away, that there will be a day, not only will there be a day that that uh, I-35 is finished, that that will happen one day, but there will be a day absent the coming of Christ, when I-35 will not exist anymore. It'll be gone. There will be a day when this amazing building will not exist anymore, where it will be gone. There will be a day, unless Christ comes again, that the United States will not exist anymore. All of these things that we tend to think about as being eternal, certainly they last for a long time, but they don't last forever. Lewis said, now contrast that with the people you run into every day. Every person that you meet is an eternal being. Every person that you meet will one day either be a brother or sister in Christ that you will see in heaven or will be someone who never knows the love of God and ends up a creature, he says, in hell. 
He describes it this way. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in your nightmares. And all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Lewis reminds us that the people we encounter in the checkout line are eternal beings. And that this should reframe how we interact with those around us. That when we have challenges, when we have differences of opinion with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we always need to keep in front of us that they are eternal creatures whom God has loved and for whom God has died. And so our orientation toward those around us should shift as a result. The love of Christ transforms us by changing our attitude toward God. It changes our attitude toward others and it affects our sinful attitudes toward ourselves. Ourselves, as we begin to realize that we are called, can you believe this, to be co-heirs with Christ? Sons and daughters of the living God? This is what God calls us to be as we come to know Him and His love for us. Years ago, I, I enjoyed watching my kids play. <clears throat> Not actually playing with them, of course, just watching them play. And uh, my daughters in particular loved playing uh, makeup games where they would pretend to be someone. I guess their lives were so miserable, they always wanted to pretend to be something else. And so they would say, uh, why don't, um, why don't uh, you be the teacher and I'll be the student? And they would play that game for a while. And the, the teacher, or they'll be, why don't you be the daddy and I'll be the baby? And the dad was always really bossy. I never understood that particular game. But their favorite game, their absolute favorite game was princesses. I'll be the big girl princess, you be the little girl princess. And they would, they would love to play this game where they were princesses. And Paul came along and I wondered how that would fit in, uh, but they became the big girl princess, the little girl princess, and the dog, uh, was how they, how they characterized it at that time. But I think it speaks to this uh, this very fundamental desire that we see played out in our stories of where the uh, the, the stable boy is finds out that he's the king, or the daughter finds out that she's royalty in way. Or you know, when my kids were little, that the uh, the the person you go to high school with is actually secretly a pop star uh, in real life. These all speak to this idea that I think is embedded in the gospel, which is uh, we see ourselves as those who are sanctified and set apart by Christ, a royal priesthood, as those that he has called to be sons and daughters of God. That we are not who we think we are. We are more than we think we are because Christ has deemed us more worthy and more valuable than we can even imagine. So valuable that He sent His Son to die for us. Love transforms our attitude toward God, toward others, and to ourselves in some most holy ways. Love compels us. Love blinds us. Love transforms us. And lastly, love empowers us. 
And we see these in verses 18 through 20. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sins against us. And he has committed us, committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. So all of this is leading up to something. The fact that God shares his love with us, the fact that God provides us power to reach out on his behalf is not so that we can sit back and feel uh, confident in our stance before God, but it's always designed for the purpose of going somewhere and doing something. God has called us into action. Ministry is a, uh, a term that is used often, and I think it is all too often used too narrowly. It is used to define what people who stand behind this pulpit uh, do, uh, or those, if you go to the church website and see where it lists all of our ministry staff, we say, okay, those are the ministers, which means I, I you know, we look there, make sure our, our face is not there and say, okay, good. I don't have to be a minister. They're the ministers. Some of this, I think, comes from our our, uh, our Catholic uh, ancestors uh, before our, uh, our our Protestant ancestors broke away. This idea that the clergy is separate, that forgiveness and and uh, and God's sacraments and all that comes through the priest. And in the Protestant tradition and in the Baptist tradition, there's this understanding that we're all priests before God. We all have that ability to go directly to God to confess our sins. We all have that ability to reach out to him directly for salvation and for forgiveness, not mediated through any man, but directly this relationship that we have with him. And so what that means for ministry is that we're all ministers. We're all ministers of the kingdom. Or in Paul's language here, we're all ambassadors that God has called to send us. An ambassador is someone who goes on behalf of someone else to share a message that that person has in mind for them. God calls us to these things. God calls us to come and to follow me, said Jesus. And Paul's message restates this and says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. For some reason, and this will be a good question for heaven, God has called us to be a part of his plan to save this world. God demands of us that we participate in that and how we reach out and love others. Ministry always calls us to go beyond simply coming to church. There was a study done several years ago by George Barna, uh, who is known for his research studies on uh, contem- the contemporary Christian church in the United States and around the world. And the results of this study came out, and it indicated that with uh, some of the social sins that people engage in, things like adultery, uh, things uh, like lying, uh, things like pornography, that the number of people who regularly go to church and the number of those outside the church, the numbers were almost exactly the same. Exactly the same. 
So you can imagine the, the conclusions that people drew. Some people drew the conclusion, well, it does no good. This thing called church, this God called Christ does no good. Another conclusion drawn from it is that perhaps simply showing up at church is not the best measure for what it means to be a Christian. God has called us to come together and we are obedient when we do so, but that is not the end of the matter. God has also called us to reach out and invest our lives in ministry in the lives of others. And this is hard because it involves taking ourselves beyond our own comfort level and our own satisfied lives and investing them into the lives of others where things may be a little more messy, may be a little more difficult. Ministry is is rarely a linear progress where you see the lives of people get better and better and better because of your involvement. More often than not, it's getting a phone call from someone you've been working with for a period of time and you're having the exact same conversation you were having with, having with them months, in some cases years earlier. It involves hugging people, which even in a pre-COVID environment, uh, hugging others uh, was uh, felt a bit odd to some of us. It involves getting involved in the messiness laughing with people, crying with people, all part of this joyful journey that we're engaged in together. Ministry is always messy, but it's always important as God has in mind for us, not that we stay the way we are, but we continue to grow into His image. And that comes through investing our lives in others as we are faithful to what God has called us to do. Because what we find when we engage in ministry toward others is that it begins to affect us. We think we're going to help them, whoever them may be, but we recognize sometimes after the fact only that it has resulted in a change in us. There's a tremendous um, uh, Catholic uh, minister by the name of Henry Nguyen, He uh, was a lecturer at Yale University. He spoke at Harvard as well. Uh, He even made the Crystal Cathedral uh, for um, uh, Robert Shuler's church many years ago. He was incredibly successful speaking engagements around the world, and then he quit. He quit it, walked away, and dropped below the radar. People assumed that something had happened. And he wrote about it later. He went instead up to Canada and began participating in something called the ARC, which was a uh, program for people who had severe cognitive and physical disabilities. And it was a uh, a caring environment, um, incredibly different from anything he had been engaged in before. And he began working. He was assigned to work with this young man named Adam, who was incapable of speech, uh, was, uh, was uh, significantly disabled. And he ended up writing a book about their care and his relationship with Adam. And he was asked uh, in an interview afterwards, uh, why would you leave all, all of this great things that you were doing to go and to serve others in this place? And he immediately corrected the interviewer and said, actually what he said is you need to read the book. 
Because his point in the book is how his life had been transformed by serving Adam, not what Adam had gotten out of his care for him. And so there is this very strange thing that occurs when one engages in ministry, is that you go into it thinking that you are helping this other person, but realize in retrospect how God has not all the time changed them, but how God does change you in that action and in that love. What we need to understand is that ministry is not a part of the Christian life, but it is the growth of the Christian life. And as we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, we take on more and more of His characteristics. And He was one who lived for others in their entirety. I don't know where everyone is uh, in here today in terms of their understanding of who God is and where God is, but I do want to give you an opportunity to respond to any of these words of Paul for us today. Uh, you, you may find strange the thought that God loves you exactly the way you are, that God provides an opportunity for you to get to know Him and those around you better uh, through coming to Him and seeking forgiveness of sin, uh, which forms this obstacle between us and this relationship with Him that we have. Now is an opportunity for you to do that. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Eddie to come forward and Matt to come and lead us as we sing our hymn invitation, I Have Decided. God is calling us to make this decision not just uh, to be uh, ministers in His name, but to be responsive to those that He has called us to reach. Won't you come as we sing our hymn of invitation Hymn 305, I have decided. Thank you for listening today. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or need to talk with someone. We're here to listen, to help, and to encourage. 